Coffee. I'm your host, Chris Prosser. And before we get into today's episode, I want to offer a quick apology for my hiatus that I've been on since about mid-March. Between our daughter being born and seminary classes starting to pick back up and being busy recording new episodes for the Light and Lion podcast, of which I'm also a part of, Um, I've just not had the time to sit down and actually prep for a new episode on Theology and a Cup of Coffee, but with that said, I'm excited to continue working through the gospel according to Matthew as we are currently in the Sermon on the Mount, which is of course one of Jesus' most famous sermons, if not the most famous. And today we're going to be looking at a passage that I think will be incredibly familiar to you all as we will be picking up in Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 15. And it is in these 10 verses where we find what is most commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. So let's go ahead and read through the entire passage first, and then we're going to work on breaking things down. So Matthew 6, verses 15, excuse me, verses 5 through 15. So starting here in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So to break down these 10 verses, I thought it'd be helpful to give a four-part outline. And by the way, just as a side note, when you're studying any passage of Scripture, it can be exceptionally helpful to read through the passage several times. And then as you're reading through, try to break down the passage into groups like I'm going to do in this episode. And doing this, it can help you follow the biblical author's thought progression, and also it can help aid you in performing proper exegesis because you're able to keep each and every verse in its appropriate context. Now, to be sure, I've covered my bases here. I'm not suggesting that you should read each and every verse in isolation and apart from other verses that are not talking about exactly the same thing. But instead, what I'm saying is that as you work through a given passage, if you notice a cluster of verses that seem to be addressing a topic or a theme or a question, and and you notice that in, in a cluster of verses, it can help you understand how the author is developing his argument and what the main points are that um, he is trying to communicate in that particular passage. And so um, in this particular episode, we are breaking down the 10 verses into four main themes or topics. So the the four-part outline for the Lord's Prayer that we have here is first, where to pray, second, how to pray, third, what to pray, and fourth, daily forgiveness. So for this episode, we're going to follow this outline, and hopefully it's going to make things as easy as possible and provide a really practical example of how you can um, start using this sort of outline methodology when you're doing your own Bible study. 
So again, let's read verses five and six really quickly uh, just to kind of get things started off here. So verse five and six, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So in these opening two verses here um, of the section that we're looking at today, there is a contrast that's given between two types of people. First, Jesus describes two different options for the location of prayer. He says that uh, some will choose to pray publicly out in the synagogues, out in the streets. Um, In other words, they're visible to other people. And there are those who will choose to pray privately in their own rooms or even in their closet with a door shut behind them. The next subject that Jesus addresses here is this contrast of motivations behind choosing where someone is going to pray. So Jesus says that the ones who are praying out in public, you know, the synagogues and the street corners, their motivation for doing this is because they want to be seen and heard by others. And now this is presumably because they have a strong desire to possess all the appearances of godliness and piety without necessarily finding any satisfaction at all, just in simply being in God's presence and speaking with him through prayer. On the other hand, there are those who are praying privately with nobody around to hear them but God, and they are making their desires known to him. I just want to say as a side note, those who spend much time in private prayer, they are pleased to be in God's presence, and that ultimately is their motivation for praying in private. They just need an audience of one. They just simply need to be in God's presence, knowing that he hears every word that they say. The third contrast is the result of these two very different locations of prayer and the motivations behind them. So those who are praying in public to make a show of piety as they're uttering their empty prayers, they are doing so because from their heart, they desire worldly praise. That is their reward. In other words, they're hoping that people are going to come up to them after they finish praying and compliment them because of their long, drawn-out, probably very eloquent prayers, if we can call them that, that they're offering up to the Lord. Jesus says that these people have, in fact, received all that they can expect to receive, which is the praise of man. That is the reward that they're truly after from their heart. And Jesus says that they'll get this reward. When we pray for attention or any other self-serving purpose, we will receive our reward. And the reward in this case is a very cheap alternative to the actual blessings of God. Those who pray privately, those who are glad to be heard by the Lord and by nobody else, Those are the people who receive their reward from their heavenly Father. So in contrast with the first type of person who receives a temporal, vain, fleeting reward, the one who persists in private prayer with the motivation and desire of speaking to God and being heard by God without any concern of getting praise from man, it is that person who will get the real deal. Uh, They will get the real reward. Now, this does not mean that God answers yes to everything that the person who prays privately asks for, but it does mean that God hears their prayers and he promises to work in and through those prayers for their good and for his glory. We have to realize that prayer is about bending our wills and ourself to the will of God, which is the greatest good. Being in God's will is the greatest good that anyone could ever experience because it is in the will of God where we can experience life to the absolute fullest. And the person who prays privately and persistently, they will get to experience this reward. 
But then naturally the question is going to arise, well, does this mean that we should never, ever pray in public? What about when we are blessing our food? What about my pastor? You may be listening to this thinking, uh, well, I need to call my pastor and tell him that he needs to repent because he's been praying in front of the congregation every Sunday. But before you do that, before you stop praying over meals and things like this, let me provide a little bit more clarity. In these two verses, Jesus is not condemning all instances of public prayer. He is condemning specific instances of public prayer in which the motivation is ultimately vain and self-serving. In the example that Jesus provides, he says that the hypocrite's motivation for praying publicly is not for the good of others or for the glory of God. It's not an act of worship. It is simply an act of self-glorification. And I will say most, if not all of us, struggle with pride and arrogance. And I want to caution us against the belief that any of us are above uh, falling into this type of grievous, prideful sin. Um, I, I really want to caution us against that. And private prayer is one of the things that we can do to help eliminate even the smallest of temptations to pray as a performance before man rather than what it is meant to be, which is a private, intimate communion in a petition to the one true God of the universe. So the next portion of the outline is going to deal with the topic of how we should pray. And this is uh, made up of verses 7 and 8. So from the last section, we learned the importance of where we should pray. Private prayer. Go into your room, close the door behind you, spend time with God one-on-one. But now Jesus is going to give us some instruction as to how we should pray when we have gone to our room and we've closed the door. So instead of giving a list uh, to start with of all the things that we should be doing, straight away Jesus actually gives us a negative imperative, which is another way of saying that he gives a command of what we should not be doing, um, or, or it's a command to not do a particular thing is a better way of saying that. And I point this out because, like I said, instead of starting to address how to pray with all the things that we should be doing, Jesus tells us instead of what we should avoid. So in other words, uh, actually Jesus here is he's giving us a clue of what sort of thing um, in terms of our speech, the actual words that we're saying. Um, he gives us a clue that we need to be careful because what we say uh, can actually be detrimental to our prayer life if, if we are uttering things um, that, that we shouldn't be saying in our prayer life. And so the negative imperative here is to not heap up empty phrases. So empty phrases is how the ESV translates the original Greek word, and you, you guys are going to have to forgive me. I have not taken Greek yet. I'm taking it in the fall, so check back with me then. But I'm going to try my best to pronounce this word here. The Greek word um, in in the original is bada la gasete. I think I'm saying that right. The King James translates the same word, vain repetition. And the word in, in the Greek means to repeat words or phrases without meaning. So I think if we take the ESV translation of empty phrases and we combine it with vain repetition, we get a very robust sort of view of what this word actually means. Uh, the way that John MacArthur talks about this idea is that saying Jesus is warning us to not treat prayer like some sort of automated formula that we can just say with our mouths and not have any of our heart involved with it. In other words, we're just uttering words that really have no meaning. Uh, we're saying phrases that maybe sound religious or sound spiritual, but our heart's not really in it. We're not really engaged. Uh, prayer is a time of engaging our thoughts, our souls, our minds, and our mouths, all for the purpose of communicating with the triune God. 
repeating meaningless phrases over and over again, even though they may sound really religious and really spiritual and really holy, um, but repeating meaningless phrases does nothing for us, um, and it absolutely dishonors the Lord. The main point that I want to make here is that more does not always equal better when it comes to your prayer life. And yes, there may be times when you have dedicated yourself to an extended period of prayer and petition, but as Spurgeon says, you're before the Lord, let your words be few, but let your heart be fervent. In other words, when you're praying, it is better to say fewer words, but your heart to be in and behind every single word that you're saying, rather than to pray for an hour, but you're basically you know, just kind of talking to the wind. You're not really saying anything of meaning. And your heart's certainly not engaged with what you're saying. We have to remember that prayer is communication with God. It is not some sort of religious practice that we do to check a box. It is actual intentional communion with the triune God, and we need to treat it as such. So it's more important that what we say in prayer actually means something rather than just heaping up a whole bunch of empty phrases like the ESV renders it. We don't need to be saying things that make us sound holy and religious and spiritual. We need to say things that actually mean something. And one of the reasons, too, that we can be brief to Spurgeon's point, you know, he says, let let your words be few. One of the reasons that we can be brief in our prayers is because, as Jesus says, God knows our every need before we even utter a word. And this speaks to the omniscience or the all-knowingness of God. We don't have to worry about forgetting things or leaving things out because God knows our every need far better than we do. And uh, this is a point that Jesus will reiterate when he talks about you know not being anxious in the very next section. But one thing, too, I want to say here is that being brief in prayer because God knows everything, that's not necessarily a cop-out or a way out for you to be lazy in your prayer. That Those are two different things. The point that I'm trying to get at here is, is if you have a lot on your heart and a lot that you want to bring to the Lord, and it may take you a while to do that, please do so. Don't feel like you have to be brief. What I'm saying, though, is it's better to be brief and your heart to be engaged, your mind to be engaged, your thoughts to be engaged with what you're saying, rather than praying long uh, for the sake of praying long if you're just saying a bunch of things that don't really mean anything. And I also want to quickly point out that in this verse, or these really these two verses, we see one of a few different instances in the Sermon on the Mount, one of which we've already looked at, Uh, when we looked at the antithetical statements. Um, But we see a few instances where Jesus contrasts uh, behavior against the behavior of the Gentiles. So an example of this would be in chapter 5, like we've already looked at. When Jesus is talking about loving our enemies, he says, if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. In other words, there's sort of this negative connotation with the things, uh, the behaviors and the actions of the Gentiles. But I want to say here that this is not some sort of racism issue that Jesus has with the Gentiles. We have to realize that at this point in redemptive history, Gentiles were considered unclean, and as a result, God's chosen people uh, could not, should not be replicating their practices. When God called Israel to be his people, he called them to be a holy nation set apart, and what that means is that they cannot be imitating the pagan nations around them who are going after other gods. They need to worship the one true God in the exact way that the one true God has commanded them. So that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not some sort of racist issue as some more progressive theologians have made it out to be. So now we come to the third section of our outline here, which is probably the most memorized 
or at least one of the most memorized portions of the entire New Testament, which is the Lord's Prayer itself. Maybe some of you didn't even realize that this is actually in the Bible. Maybe you just thought it was a, a church confession or something like that. Um, but so there are a lot of really excellent sermons on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, these are from men who are far more equipped than me. And I would highly encourage you all, if you want to really dive deep on this topic, I would encourage you to seek out some of those resources. Uh, one in particular that comes to mind is Dr. R.C. Sproul. He has an entire teaching series on each section of the Lord's Prayer, and um, I'll link that in the show notes if you guys want to check that out, and I'd highly encourage you to. But my goal here is more so to give a high-level overview of the five major components of the Lord's Prayer and how these five components really give us a framework for how we should be praying. So first, at the very opening, we have an acknowledgement of who God is and the reverence that we should have in light of the fact of who God is. So anytime we pray, I think it's a very healthy practice to always intentionally and um, kind of right from the get-go, in other words, sort of in our introduction, if you want to call it that, the introduction of our prayer, it's important that we intentionally acknowledge who it is that we are speaking to before we say another word. And there's also two things that we learn here from verse 9 that really should frame how we view prayer. First, we learn about our relationship to God, and then we also, like I've already alluded to, we learn about the reverence that we should have for his name. So God, first and foremost, he's our heavenly father. He's not some distant cosmic being who is unconcerned with the creatures that he has made like uh, deists have made God out to be. He, he's not the the distant uh, clockmaker as they've called him. You know, He didn't wind the world up and then just leave us to um, unwind ourselves and kind of progress under our own power. God is very intimately involved with his creation. So he's our heavenly father, and he's our heavenly father who cares for us, and he knows our every single need. And talking about reverence, when we pray, hallowed be your name, in effect, what we are acknowledging is that the world and the flesh do not acknowledge God as God, and they don't certainly treat his holy divine name with respect um, and the reverence that it deserves. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're really making an acknowledgement from ourselves that the Lord's name is holy and is to be hallowed. But we're also, in a sense, making a request, uh, and I think I picked this up from R.C. Sproul. You have to forgive me if it's not Dr. Sproul who said this, but I think it is, where we're really just making a request for his name to be hallowed in the world because it's not. Uh, when we're enemies of God, we don't hallow his name. We don't respect his name. We don't put reverence on his name. Um, we are against his name. And so really, and I've never thought of it that way, but when I heard that, I was like, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense that really we're acknowledging God's, uh, the holiness of his name, but we're also making a request that others in the world will acknowledge his name as holy. The second component of the Lord's Prayer is us stating our desire for God's will to be done on earth. And I've said it before on Lightline, I've said it even on this episode, is that prayer is the means by which God um, bends our wills to his own. In other words, we're not making our list of demands to God and then crossing our fingers, hoping that he grants some of them. Prayer is a time of us making our requests known to God, but holding those requests with an open hand, knowing that at the end of the day, God's will alone is perfect. And it's because of the fact um, of the perfect nature of God's will that we should desire his will being accomplished over and above our own. The third component 
is an acknowledgement of God being the provider of every physical need that we have. So whether it's the clothes on our back, the food on our table, or any number of other physical needs, prayer is an appropriate time to, in humility and dependence, ask God to meet those needs. And not just ask him to meet those needs, but also to thank him for how he has met those needs in the past. But we have to remember that Jesus says in other places that man does not live on bread alone. In other words, we have a lot more than just physical needs. We also have spiritual needs as well, and this is going to lead us to our fourth component. So the fourth component addresses our preeminent spiritual need of divine forgiveness. The great problem of man is that we have sinned against a holy God, and even what is in our eyes the smallest of offenses makes us guilty and therefore subject to the justified punishment of God. The greatest need that humanity has is a way that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God, and the scriptures are clear. There's nothing that we can do. There's no works that we can offer. Our works are as good as filthy rags, as we read in the Old Testament. But of course, God provides a way for us to be forgiven, and it is a need, our greatest need, that is met only through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think here we should always take a pause and not only ask for general forgiveness of our sin, but use our prayer as a time of intentional confession and repentance and really reflection on the goodness of the gospel that God does forgive us of our sins um, when we ask. And it's not by our own merit. It's by the merit of Jesus Christ that he is pleased to forgive us because it it most glorifies his son. And the fifth and final component deals with deliverance from sin and temptation. The Christian life is one of an ongoing battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and at every turn we're presented with temptations to satisfy the desires of the flesh. However, when we give ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ and we accept him as Savior by grace through faith, we are made new creatures who possess new desires. What that means is in the context of this discussion, is that we no longer desire to sin, but we desire to flee from it. But as Paul explains in his epistle to the Romans, although we have been made new, we are new creatures, we have new desires, we have new wills, we are not yet in our glorified state. That is something that will only happen at the return of the Lord of Jesus Christ. And so until then, we have to fight against the old flesh that still desires sin. You know, Paul talks about how he does the things that he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do the things that he wants to do, and he talks about this ongoing battle that he has with the flesh. And this is a fight in which we are utterly dependent upon the grace of God if we are to be victorious. And because it's such an important need that we have, it's important that whenever we go to God in prayer, we daily, uh, moment by moment, are asking for the grace of God that we be delivered from the snares and the temptations that this world presents us. Now, as MacArthur's pointed out in his commentary, Jesus was not providing a liturgy necessarily with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And what I mean by that is it's not something necessarily that should be recited just for memory uh, with, you know, really no heart behind it. I'm not saying that we should never recite the Lord's Prayer. I think that's a good and useful thing to do. 
But really, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's actually providing us a framework with these five components that we just outlined. Um, And really, it's a framework of what our prayers should consist of. So first, we should always acknowledge who God is, and we should have reverence for him. In other words, we should not be casual in our prayers. We shouldn't say, hey, Daddy God, it's me again. You know, things like that. We need to realize who we are talking to when we get down on our knees to pray, whether it's in our bedroom, in our closet, wherever it is that you have designated, which by the way, I recommend you have a designated place of prayer. But wherever that is, we need to acknowledge that we're talking to the God who created the universe. We need to have respect and reverence for his name, but we also need to acknowledge that he is our father and we can talk to him that way. Uh, We can talk to him the way that a child addresses their father. So first, acknowledge who God is and have reverence for him. Another important part of our prayers is that we should earnestly desire that through our prayer, that our wills be conformed to God's will and also that his will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. That should be our ultimate desire. We should also approach God in humility and dependence, knowing that he alone meets all of our physical needs, but we should also take the time to acknowledge our spiritual needs, namely the need of forgiveness and cleansing of sin and the grace that we need to be sanctified. And finally, we should persistently ask the Lord to deliver us from every snare and temptation to commit evil. And while this deliverance is not going to be fully realized in this life until Christ returns, we as Christians are called to put on the full armor of God and fight against sin and temptation. Now, before I bring this episode to an end, I want to talk briefly about the final two verses, verses 14 and 15. They say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, other uh, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now we might read these verses and think to ourselves, well, God seems obligated then to forgive us of our sins against Him if we are willing to forgive others of the wrongs that they have committed against us. And it's really important to know that that is a gross misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. Verses 14 and 15 are not referring to the ultimate forgiveness of sin that we associate with justification. Um, And what I mean by justification is being made right with God through the sacrificial atonement of Christ and having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, which puts us in the uh, right proper standing before a holy God. And now there's two ways that we can think of what Jesus is saying here. One way might be to think of our willingness to forgive others um, not as something that obligates God to forgive us, but rather it's a proof or an evidence of our justification, which comes through faith and repentance. And this seems to be the way that Matthew Henry approaches the text in his commentary on Matthew 6. Now in the MacArthur commentary, Johnny Mack, he agrees that the forgiveness here is not talking about the forgiveness associated with justification, but rather it's talking about our need for daily forgiveness of sins, or as he calls it, a day-to-day cleansing. Another way he says it is that this sort of forgiveness cleanses us daily of the defilements of sin, but does not replace the wholesale forgiveness that we associate with our justification. In other words, he's distinguishing here because it's important to realize that justification, once you've been justified by grace through faith, that is not something that can ever be revoked. But uh, what MacArthur is getting at here is that we do continue to sin as much as we fight against sin in our walk with Christ. We will fight and fight and fight, yet we will continue to sin until Christ returns and we are ultimately glorified and cleansed forever from sin. What he's saying here is, is we need to be cleansed daily from that sin. We need to be uh, cleansed from the defilement 
um, that sin brings into our life. And so that's really what he's getting here, uh, getting at here. I think both of these views are correct, and I think that they can and they should be taken together in order to paint a good picture of what Jesus is communicating. So in closing, I want to encourage you as a listener, I want to encourage you to take your prayer life seriously. Prayer is not an optional thing for those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. Prayer is not something that we do when we're down in the dumps and we feel like we have no other options. So our final resort is to pray. Prayer should be our first line of defense. It should never be a final resort for us. It should not feel like a burden, but prayer should be our greatest privilege. It should feel as our greatest privilege that we get to speak, as I said earlier, to the God who created the universe, and we get to speak to him in the same way that a child speaks to their father. Now, if you don't know where to start with your prayer life, I'd encourage you to take what you've learned from this episode and apply it. That is, apply the framework that Jesus provides from the Lord's Prayer. Now, a good first step may be, to write down a prayer that follows the same structure and framework of what the Lord provides in the passage that we looked at in this episode. Another thing uh, to, worth mentioning here is that there's a story about Martin Luther, uh, you know, the the uh, reformer, Martin Luther, in which his barber asked him how he should be praying. And so naturally, Luther, he went home and he wrote a, an, an entire book on the topic. And his three suggestions uh, for when a believer is at a loss for how to pray or how to start praying, he provides three things that we can use as guides. First, the Lord's Prayer, which we discussed in today's episode. Second, the Ten Commandments. So in other words, what you're doing here is you're starting at Commandment 1, you know, no other gods, right? You're starting here and you're sort of it, – it's this sort of prayer is more so a prayer of self-reflection. Maybe as you're going through the commandments, you realize areas where you need to ask for forgiveness and repent of particular sins. Um, or maybe you just meditate on the goodness and the lovely nature of God's law and and what these uh, – what the Ten Commandments reveal about God, and and maybe it – turns into a prayer of um, praise and worship, uh, which, by the way, I don't mean to say that prayer is not always an act of worship. I believe that it is, but you guys get what I'm saying there. And then the third thing that we could use as a guide is just praying through the Apostles' Creed. And I think all of these are excellent ways that we can format our prayers, not to mention the book of Psalms, which is, by the way, it's the longest book in the Bible, and it's, in effect, just an entire book of prayer and songs of worship. Now, whether or not you decide to use these tools, I want to encourage you to commit yourself to talking with the Lord regularly. It is impossible to be conformed to the image of Christ if we do not have the same view of prayer that he has. And he gives us the best example here in Matthew 6 of how we should pray. Um, and guys, that's going to do it for this episode. I highly encourage you if you're, you know, if you've been listening to this show. Um, I'd highly encourage you to subscribe or follow us here on Spotify. I believe we're also now on Apple um, Music or Apple Podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, I'm sure we're on there. So subscribe to us there. Leave us a review. That'd be highly, uh, highly appreciated. Um, it helps not just me and the Theology in a Cup of Coffee, but it also helps Light and Line as we're a network of podcasts. So it helps us sort of expand our reach. I am also on Instagram. You can follow me at a cup of coffee.ll. Um, I post a lot of theological content there, you know, quotes and scripture uh, breakdowns and 
a lot of reels that seem to get me in a lot of trouble, really a lot of hot water with atheists online, but that's okay. So if you want to check those things out, I highly recommend go check me out on Instagram. I usually post episode updates there as well, and I'm hoping that I won't be having to go on another hiatus anytime soon. Um, but yeah, definitely check us out there. And also, if you haven't already, check out the Light and Lion podcast. We release episodes every Wednesday. We just had an excellent episode with Dr. Steve Wellum where we talked about the problem of evil. And we have an episode dropping sometime this week, um, at least at the recording of this episode, where we sat down with Scott Christensen, who is a pastor and an author of books such as What About Free Will and What About Evil? And in that episode, we, we sit down and ask the question, really, is man really free? Do we actually have free will? So I hope you guys will consider checking out those episodes as well. This has been Theology and a Cup of Coffee. I'm Chris Prosser. I'll see you next time. Okay.